This is Speaking Freely with the ACLU of Pennsylvania. I'm Andy Hoover, your host and Director of Communications at the ACLU of PA. On this episode, we're talking about commutations and pardons. Joining me to discuss this are Maria Gellner, the Pennsylvania State Policy Director for FAM, David Benyon, the Executive Director of the Free Migration Project, and Jacenia Calderon, whose father, Dennis, was deported to Peru in 2009 due to a conviction for aggravated assault. You'll also hear briefly from Marnie Jo Snyder, who is representing Dennis Calderon on his pardon application. In this conversation, we talk about why commutations and pardons are necessary in the criminal legal system and why the use of them should be even more robust than they already are. We also discuss the impact of a criminal conviction on a person's immigration status and why non-citizens are excessively punished in ways that citizens are not for the same offenses. In the show notes, you can find more resources, including a link to the Board of Pardons hearing on August 2nd and 3rd, and more information from both FAM and Free Migration Project. This conversation was recorded on July 25th. Well, Maria, Dave, Jacenia, thank you all for joining me. This is a really important issue, talking about commutations and pardons and the role they play in the criminal legal system. And Maria, I want to start with you for some basics. Tell us why commutations? What is it about Pennsylvania law that requires people to go through the commutations and pardons process to get relief? Why is it an important part of the criminal legal system? Sure. So in the historical context, first of all, thank you so much for having me. And to answer your question, in the historical context in Pennsylvania, uh, we all need to understand and really internalize that Pennsylvania is a national leader in imposing extreme sentences. So we have thousands of people in prison serving you know, sentences that are decades and decades long, often life sentences with no other chance of release. Um, under current law, except commutation. Uh, we are one of only seven states that gives absolutely no parole eligibility to lifers. So we are actually very rare nationally in that. Um, and I think sometimes that's hard for us in Pennsylvania to realize because the fish doesn't see the water that it's swimming in. The water that we've been swimming in um, for the last 30 to 40 years in Pennsylvania is one of mass incarceration. So, you know, there's the appeals process um, in a legal case. There's the post-conviction relief process in a legal case. Uh, but maybe you don't have a reason to appeal. Um, maybe you do, but you lost. You know, whatever it is, um, at some point, the legalities of the case are over and you still have a sentence of potentially decades or life stretching out in front of you. And so right now, in terms of a second look mechanism, how can I have a second look at my case and at my sentence? Commutation is really it. Um, And what FAM is trying to do nationally, big picture, is move us from a place where the snapshot is frozen in time at sentencing, where we that's what we do now. And we want to move us to a place holistically where we take a second look Um, at cases and at people and at situations, at victims' positions, at society's positions, you know, 10 or 20 or even 30 years down the road, let's just have a second look. So commutation is one piece of our second chance agenda in Pennsylvania, which also includes ending automatic life without parole, creating medical geriatric parole. But commutation is special, very special, because it's the only existing second look mechanism that we have now. 
At the same time, commutation, as many of you can probably guess, is very political. So it's it's a tough it's tough, right? Even though we want to bolster it a lot, it can kind of sway um, with the powers that be in politics. But that's why it's so important is because right now it's the only way that we can address these extreme sentences and get that second look under Pennsylvania law. And the history here is that commutations, you're talking about the political wins, and it's so important because certainly in the 70s, commutations were used a lot, correct? Absolutely. And it's really fascinating because if you look at that history, governors of, it really was a political, governors of both parties looked at commutation, including commutation of lifers. So, you know, primarily people convicted of homicides and governors of both parties would look and actually say out loud and, and have no issue saying, we use commutation as a tool to manage the prison population, you know, for the taxpayers of Pennsylvania. And then in the 80s, it became sort of a political football. And in the late 70s and 80s, it went from a place of where you'd see, you know, up to 250 commutations potentially a year um, to having none, you know, for years at a time. And so Governor Wolf has granted more commutations of lifers than the previous several governors combined. And that's wonderful. And we thank him. Having said that, it is still very much like winning the lottery. Um, it is, you know, there is often seems to be to the families of incarcerated people, no rhyme or reason um, or magic formula or policy to get it. So we're, we're working on that as well. And Maria, I, I want to come back to you to ask you a little more about the process because we're the board is responsible for for both commutations and pardons. Um, but I want to pivot over to, to Dave now to talk about the extra layer of challenge here when it comes to immigration, because people with immigration status issues may need to go in front of the board of pardons as well. So Dave, can you explain what that extra layer is? Sure. And thanks, Andy, for, for inviting us on uh, to talk about this critically important issue. Um, as you referred to criminal convictions can cause big problems for non-citizens, immigrants in the US. Um, and that's because over the past several decades, uh, kind of in line with or shortly after the uh, punitive criminal justice reforms or laws that were passed that Maria was talking about, there's been a a similar bipartisan push to increase penalties for immigrants who are convicted of crimes. And the impact of those convictions, or in some cases, even arrests on an individual's immigration case, if they're not a citizen of the US, can be complicated. What's important for our purposes today is that the penalties can be extremely harsh and illogical and go far beyond uh, the punishment that is required under the criminal system. In some cases, a conviction can lead to imprisonment by ICE, sometimes long-term imprisonment, um, and followed by deportation. It might not matter how long the person has lived in the U.S., how long ago the offense occurred, could have been decades ago. Uh, some of our clients came to the U.S. as children or even infants and they're facing these uh, disproportionate consequences. It may not matter that they have family in the US or strong community ties. It might not even matter if the person shows rehabilitation or even that they were wrongfully convicted. Uh, the laws are that harsh and arbitrary. Uh, we also know that 
black and brown immigrants are disproportionately targeted for ICE imprisonment and deportation. We also know that black and brown people in the U.S. in general, whether they're citizens or not, are disproportionately targeted by the racist carceral system. So when you combine these two, the immigration and the criminal legal systems, uh, the impact uh, of the laws targeting immigrants convicted of offenses has been that hundreds of thousands of people's lives have been upended. Families have been separated. People have lost their careers, their savings, their health. And the impact can spread far beyond just the targeted individual to their families uh, and even to their entire community. So we're looking here at people essentially being punished twice, first by the carceral system under the criminal laws and then by the immigration system through ICE imprisonment and deportation or the threat of these things that can really be terrifying to people over a long period of time. Some folks face permanent exile from the only country they really have ever known. So that's why pardons, um, if, if the original criminal case went through state court, for instance, in Pennsylvania, a pardon from the governor, and in Pennsylvania, it's a, you know, a two-step process through the Board of Pardons and then signed by the governor. That, in some cases, is the only way to avoid deportation, or um, as we'll discuss later today, in the hope of bringing somebody back to their family after a deportation. And we're going to talk with Jacenia here in a moment about the impact on her family and on her father. Um, before we do, Maria, I want to talk a little bit about the process. Um, can you define the difference between pardons and commutations and then walk us through the process of what it's like to apply for um, either a pardon or a commutation? It, it looks like it's pretty exhaustive. It is. It's really exhaustive. And so you'll, you'll hear a lot of terms thrown out around this. And I want to be clear, clemency is a power of the executive branch of government. And this is true throughout the United States, but we're going to focus on Pennsylvania today. So clemency is an executive branch power. And in Pennsylvania, clemency is an umbrella term that covers both pardons on one hand and commutations on the other hand. So there are two forms of the same executive clemency power, and they take very significant different forms. So FAM is focused on commutations, which are aimed at shortening a sentence, most often a prison sentence, like I'm talking about for lifers who have no other relief. It could also be, you know, any amount of prison sentence, a five to 10 year sentence, a 10 to 20 year sentence, but it's aimed at shortening that um, that sentence. Whereas a pardon is civic forgiveness for the crime. So it's not aimed at um, shortening the prison sentence. It's aimed at kind of wiping it clean, almost like um, an annulment is kind of like wiping a marriage away is a type of analogy for that. So it is a very exhaustive process. It it's, takes longer and typically is much more complicated than people think. Uh, FAM has a one-page explainer that I can put in the chat. And just to walk you briefly through the steps, the Board of Pardons does now have um, a decent website that has an application online. Um, at the end of the year, they are moving this year, 2022, they are moving to an electronic system where you should be able to file online. But currently, um, it's my understanding that that's not the case, at least not for commutation. So you get the application online, you fill it out. It requires a ton of information and documents, much of them from 
the county where the conviction occurred. So if you're no longer living there, if you're in ICE custody across the country, if you're out of the country, if you're in prison, it can be very hard to get those documents from the clerk of courts in a county, you know, where you're no longer at. Um, And many other documents, driving record, police state record, all kinds of documents, um, your case record. So the first thing is just to know that just submitting the application is not actually an easy thing to do. It's going to take you a while to get everything teed up. You send in the application, the Board of Pardons reviews it for completeness. We are seeing that it sometimes takes years just from them getting it to them actually filing it and giving it a case number. So your next step at home or wherever you're at is going to be that you get a um, case number and something indicating that they've actually filed the application. Um, At that point, once it's filed, you're going to be interviewed, um, whether you are at home, in prison, I believe in ICE custody, although I can't say that definitively, that may be in person, that may be on the phone, your interview with some sort of um, parole staff. Um, And then basically all sorts of different parties get the chance to chime in. So the original prosecutor on your case, the judge, um, the Department of Corrections, if you're in prison, they get they get a vote. Um, And then the Board of Pardons looks at all of that information. The Board of Pardons is a five person board in Pennsylvania that consists of a victim advocate who's appointed a corrections expert who's appointed all by the governor. a doctor who's appointed the attorney general, so currently Josh Shapiro, and the lieutenant governor, so currently John Fetterman. Those are the five people on the board. They look at all the materials that have been submitted, and they do what's called a merit review. Um, You don't have an opportunity to uh, hear what they discuss, but you can see how they vote. That's public. That's what's coming up next week is a merit review. Um, and they will vote. And so most people need two votes to get past that step. You need two of the five. Um, If you are incarcerated on a life sentence or a violent conviction, you need three votes to go forward. Um, And then if you get, you, you know, it might be the end of the road for you there if you don't get the votes. If you do go forward, the Board of Pardons prints a notice of your case in the local newspaper where the crime occurred in print victims are notified, and then there's a public hearing, at which point you will have a chance to be heard. Um, So will any opposition to your partner commutation. Unfortunately, you only get about 15 minutes um, in most cases. So it's not a lot of time and you have to split that, you know, if you have more than one character witness, Board of Pardons members may ask nothing, they may grill you, Um, the victims in the case may also give secret input. They don't have to testify. They can still give input that's confidential. And then the board of pardons recesses, they talk about all the information and then they come back out in public and vote again. Um, and so same thing, you have a higher standard. If you're on a violent or life conviction, you actually need a unanimous vote, which is an extremely high bar was not always that way. That was a tough on crime reaction in the nineties. It used to be majority vote. Um, But most people, if you don't have a life sentence or uh, violent conviction, needs a majority again to get a pardon or commutation. So if that happens, if you you pass that that step, you're still not done. Now it goes to the governor and the governor can sign the pardon or commutation or decline to sign it. Um, With Governor Wolf, we've seen that typically he he does sign what comes across his desk. Um, But that may not always, you know, that may or may not always be the case, depending on administration. 
So if the governor grants it, you know, you're good to go. You'll get an official document saying you're, you were pardoned or your sentence was commuted. Um, and if you're denied or, or, you know, fall off at any point throughout those steps, you can reapply if and when circumstances change um, or in one to two years, depending on whichever happens first. And on this podcast, we've talked a bit about some of the um, onerous conditions for people on probation and parole. And I, uh, my understanding is uh, folks who get a commutation, are they still under some sort of um, parole uh, supervision or what's the, what does their status end up being? Yes. Um, so, sorry, quick correction. Um, I apologize. I did just say that next week was the mayor review. It's not. <laughs> I had that wrong. Thank you for okay. correcting me, David. Next week is the public hearing, not the mayor review. So next week would, you know, you can tune in and watch that. I definitely advise folks do that to see what it's like. Um, and then in terms of commutation, um, there are, I mostly deal with lifers. So typically we're seeing that they still will have lifetime supervision but certainly that could be commuted as well. So there are people mm. who have parole commuted to less. Um, there are people who have a life sentence commuted to something else and then come back later and try to get the lifetime supervision commuted. There's a, that could kind of go a lot of different ways, but at least for lifers, we see that they're, they're definitely still on supervision. So Justenia, I want to turn to you now. This Everything we're discussing right now is having has had a very personal impact on you. Um, your father, Dennis, was deported to Peru in 2009. He had lived in the United States since he was a kid. Um, and he's been there since 2009 due to an aggravated assault uh, conviction. I want to ask you a little bit about that incident. But first, just tell us a little bit about his life. What is his life there? It, your family is here. Um and he's in Peru. Can you tell us a little bit about his life in Peru? Um, so I've only, well, first of all, thank you for having me here and hearing our side of the story, you know, from our perspective. Um, yeah, so my father's life in Peru, I've only saw him twice out there. You know, Peru is a third world country. So um, you know, he is a little older, like in his 50s, 60s. Not that that's old, but he's, you know, in his 50s. And there in Peru, they don't, um, how do you say they don't value uh, people of that age to to pay them well enough. So basically he's like a telemarketer. He's living in a room, you know, with a, just a bathroom, his living conditions are kind of poor as far as what they could be in the United States. You know, he could be better. Like he, the opportunity that he gave me and my brother to when he came here and met my mom. Yeah. And this incident occurred in 1996 and you were five years old. So this has basically been with you your whole life. Um, you have a, a younger brother as well. What is the, and he's in the United States. What's the impact been on you and your brother and the rest of your family? Um, I mean, it's still impacting us this day, this injustice. You know, he suffered a hate crime back when I was five. I'm 30 years old now. Um, and then to get deported after that, you know, I missed me and my brother missed a big chunk of time with our father. And when he was in our lives, you know, he was a family man. He was very like active in our lives and loved being with the family. Um, he has both his parents that are out here. He has four siblings that are out here. So um, when he left, my mom had to kind of like step in and be the mother and father figure for me and my brother and take on, you know, financially, emotionally, um, his roles 
that, you know, when, cause he provided for us, my mom was a single, uh, she was a stay at home mom. And then she was forced into single motherhood to take care of me and my brother when we were younger. So uh, it still impacts us to this day because, you know, knowing that he's out there by himself, isolated, you know, we've gone through a pandemic, we've gone through a lot of changes in this world and it's really hard to see him, you know, go through everything that he did here to get deported and have to continue to go through, you know, life on his own in a foreign country because he's not, he wasn't used to that country. He was raised in New York and then brought me and my brother up in Pennsylvania. So um, it's just, you know, emotionally draining to have to still deal with this 25 years later, um, knowing that he shouldn't be there and it shouldn't have happened in the first place. So I want to ask you about that incident and what you just said about this shouldn't have happened in the first place. You'd also refer to it as a hate crime. So this happened in Philadelphia um, in 1996. Tell us a little bit about the incident. There's a lot of questions about just how legitimate this conviction even was. Right. So he was the victim of a hate crime. Um, our family on a block in Philadelphia were the first Latino family um, on that street. And he basically got jumped um, by a group of um, white males. And, uh, you know, when everything was said and done, the police saw him. They put him in the back of the car saying it was for his protection. Um, fast forward, he got convicted of aggravated assault. They tried to say that it was my father who was the one who started the whole incident, him and my cousin. Um, two brown males versus, you know, over 10 plus white male, white men. Um, I feel David could be a little bit uh, better at explaining exactly how the, the event occurred. But um, yeah, Dave, do you want to weigh in and uh, put it, give us some more detail? Sure. Uh, one of the assailants essentially had a, uh, a negative medical reaction there. We believe that uh, some of the eyewitnesses, some of them weren't even eyewitnesses, but claimed to be that they perjured themselves and said that uh, Jesenia's father and uh, his, her father's cousin were uh, the assailants and actually had uh, beaten the, the assailant who, um, had a medical reaction, fell into a coma, later passed away. Um, disgraced former district attorney Seth Williams was the assistant district attorney on the case, and he prosecuted it uh, persistently and vindictively, and we believe with an eye to his political future. And uh, after the assailant, the putative victim, passed away, uh, brought murder charges. The family got new counsel, uh, brought new forensic testimony to light. They were acquitted on those later charges, uh, rightly so, we believe. And then um, the, the family, through counsel, brought that new forensic medical evidence uh, to request a new trial based on ineffective assistance the first time around, and the original convicting judge vacated his own sentence and said, hey, if I'd known this the first time, I wouldn't have convicted these guys. I got it wrong. Uh, so that's the backstory. 
Seth Williams prevailed on appeal. The conviction stood, led to deportation, led to years and years of incarceration, both in the uh, prison and the immigration system before the two were finally deported about 12 years ago. And Marnie Jo Snyder is here as well, um, who's also helping to represent Dennis in the pardons um, case. Do you want to weigh in, Marnie? I, I mean, just to summarize kind of the, the way that this conviction worked in the courts, um, Dennis Calderon and his cousin Julio are attacked by this group of white males in Northeast Philadelphia. And all of the witnesses at trial talk about uh, seeing or thinking that they saw. A lot of people even claim, oh, I thought I saw or I know it to have happened, but can't point to what they saw with their own ears or, or saw with their own eyes or heard with their own ears. And they say that there are blows to this person's head. Um, Dennis and Julio are convicted of aggravated assault. And the theory of the Commonwealth of the government is that they had blows that had struck blows to this man's head. This man ends up dying and they believe that there is a link to causation from the original offense and hitting of his head to his death. But when someone passes away, they do an autopsy. And when they open up his head, they find that there is no trauma to his head. He was not hit in the head. That is, in fact, not what happened. So Dennis and Julio are acquitted of the murder charges. And the judge um, who had heard the original aggravated assault trial said, wait a second, I understand that I couldn't have seen into a live person's head. But now that I know that there was no head trauma, I certainly would grant them a new trial. They, he didn't get hit in the head. And so he goes to do that. And Seth Williams decides that this is going to be a sticking point for him, that even though Dennis and Julio has, have actually served jail time and plenty of it by this point, this is going to be where he really believes that he needs to use the taxpayer's money to go through the state courts and eventually um, also fight against a writ of habeas corpus that was filed in the federal courts on Dennis's behalf. And so he uses an exorbitant amount of taxpayer money fighting to make sure that Dennis and Julio have this conviction hanging over their heads. Um, and they have to be away from their families. And it's pretty much a life sentence separation order from their families. And so that they can't come back. Um, and that's why we believe that if anything, if, if we had a way to get back into court, we absolutely believe a judge would say they deserve a new trial. And we bet that that trial would result in a not guilty verdict and and them being reunified with their families. But it's been so long that this is our avenue is to is to ask for this pardon. And we think that, you know, normally people are asked to go in front of a pardons board and just beg for forgiveness and apologize um, without qualification. And we hope that the board can kind of see that there's something very wrong with this conviction. And in addition these men have been out of trouble for many years, have done everything that they need to do in the community to prove that they are good people and deserve a second chance, conviction or no conviction. So we hope that they don't um, ask for performative remorse and really instead think about who these people are. So, Dave, I, I, th I know the answer to this question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. I have to assume that what happened to Dennis is pretty common in the immigration spaces. There's even a, there's a phrase for it, crimigration. Um, how often do you see these kinds of cases uh, in the work that you do for Free Migration Project? Uh, thanks, Andy. So uh, it's, it's not uncommon. 
I'll say every case is different, and Dennis's case is particularly egregious. The number of factors that combined here with uh, what what we believe is a wrongful conviction in the first place that had all of these later impacts. But it's very true that it's common for encounters by immigrants with the police to lead to big problems in their immigration cases. Uh, we work with uh, a lot of clients who've been caught up in this immigration intersection between the criminal and immigration systems that you referenced. Uh, even an arrest that never leads to a conviction has to be disclosed to the immigration authorities every time an individual applies for almost any immigration benefit, like a visa, a green card, citizenship, um, for instance, even DACA, if uh, people who came to the U.S. as kids and have been approved for DACA, they, they have to go through this process of disclosure every single time. And in some cases where there has been a conviction, like Dennis and Julio's, the penalties go far beyond what a citizen would face for the same conviction. Um, I should say also we're we're working with several folks from the Viet and Cambodian communities in and around Pennsylvania who came to the U.S. as kids or young men, or in a couple of cases, infants. Um, they and their families had been displaced by the U.S. war in Southeast Asia uh, way back in the 70s and 80s. Many came to the U.S. as refugees. Many of them even became green card holders, but not U.S. citizens for one reason or another. Uh, they had come to a new country, an unfamiliar culture. They were facing intergenerational trauma, and they were thrown into neighborhoods in Philadelphia and other cities around the country with few resources and into places that were at the time being targeted by racist policing. Um, many were convicted of crimes. Some of them were wrongfully convicted, like Dennis and Julio, others not. Uh, some of them were violent offenses, others not. Some were charged as adults for arrests that occurred when they were minors. Uh, a couple have never even set foot in the country that the U.S. ended up deporting them to or wants to deport them to now. But they were detained and deported anyway by presidents from, I should say, under the administrations of presidents from both parties. So at Free Migration Project, we're working with uh, a grassroots community organization in Philly called Viet Lead uh, that works in the Southeast Asian community. And we're collaborating to try to prevent deportations or bring people back who've been deported and to utilize the clemency, the pardon process in Pennsylvania with that in mind. Uh, Maria, FAM supports ramping up the commutations process and making it a more common, um, commonly used system uh, and, and tactic, I guess, in the, in the criminal legal system. Can you talk a little bit about that? Why does FAM support ramping up uh, com commutations and why do folks who apply for commutations uh, deserve that opportunity? Absolutely. So I want to be clear, and as much as we are actively very much working on commutations, at the same time, they will never be enough to address all of the excessive sentences that have been doled out in Pennsylvania over the last 40 years. All 
of the people who were put in in the early 80s are now in their 50s, 60s, 70s. Um, and because, as we said, commutation is like winning the lottery right now in Pennsylvania, it's not ever going to be enough. But it is the mechanism that we have. And so making it better, uh, making it uh, more efficient, all of those things are very important. So we would love to see our, our policy priorities are to you know, have the constitutional amendment that makes that board of pardons have a unanimous vote uh, that I mentioned was created in the 90s. We want to see that go back to what it's always been historically, which is a majority vote, um, which makes it a little bit less political, a little bit easier to get, but still a very high bar overall to get it. We'd like to see this governor, the next governor, every governor after them um, to regularly use their executive clemency power and we'd also really like to see them clear the backlog that they have now and hold more merit review and public hearings. There are nowhere near enough being held every year by regulation. Um, there should be nine. Um, they should be meeting nine months out of the year. They're not doing that. Um, they are not holding enough hearings. And we know that because there is this massive backlog. Um, another thing they could do is look at classes of people. Um, I think David mentioned expedited classes. So we'd love to see more expedited classes for things like felony murder, where you didn't have to actually kill anybody to get a life uh, or intend to kill anybody to get a life sentence. We'd love to see classes for old and sick people, um, you know, or for those who just missed juvenile life or relief from the U.S. Supreme Court, maybe those people who were 18 to 26 at the time of their crime. Um, so clemency, extremely important because it's what we have. It is a meaningful second look mechanism. A lot of people um, have gotten free through commutation, but alone it will never be enough. We need that and legislative solutions. And why? Um, I'm going to tell you a really big secret, which is that people change over time. And so I am most definitely not the same person I was when I was 25 or 21 or 18 or 14. Um, and neither are people when they go into prison and then are now turning 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80. We had an 85-year-old woman in a wheelchair get commutation last week um, or two weeks ago in Pennsylvania, Phoebe um, Tomasic, who had been there for decades and decades. She is not the same person now. Um, and so not saying that it has to be for everybody, but shouldn't we be taking that second look is, is the reason why for their families, for them, for taxpayers, um, for everybody involved. So Maria, next week, as you mentioned, uh, August 2nd and 3rd, the Board of Pardons will hold hearings. What will happen at those hearings? So those are the public hearings. Um, and basically, that's when people have made it pretty far by that point, but that doesn't mean you're going to keep going. Um, so at that point, you've made it by your merit review, your application is rolling along, and now the five board members on the Board of Pardons are actually going to hear your case for all of 15 minutes for you to tell your whole life story and the argument. I mean, you, you literally almost have less time, you know, to hear, for instance, Dennis's case than we, than we had today. Uh, but you get a chance to make your case. Hopefully they have looked at and really absorbed all the information that you've sent in letters, character letters, you know, your whole packet, your application, um, and they will actually vote. Um, and you can watch this online live and they'll vote and you'll watch it and know, you know, if you are fortunate enough to be able to watch it in real time, if you're the one affected or the family, um, you're going to know right there if you got enough votes to send the application to the governor um, or if you're done right there. So people's entire lives are hinging on on that hearing. Um, and I definitely, again, recommend that folks watch it just to get a sense of of what's happening. 
So Justenia, your father will be will be heard at those hearings. Um, what's the message that you want members of the Board of Pardons to hear about him in his case? He's been separated from his family for 25 plus years. And I would love to see, you know, us reconnect again and be able to make up for lost time that was taken away from him and from us. Um especially since it was for a wrongful conviction, something he didn't do. And um, yeah, I just want to be able to spend, you know, the few years that we have in this world, time goes by so quickly and you never know what can happen. So I want to be able to, you know, spend the rest of our time together, like the end of his life. Sorry, I'm nervous. <laughs> no, no, that's okay. Um, no, I appreciate that. Um, so Maria, are there, where can folks go to find more information about FAM? Are there any particular initiatives or anything happening that folks can, like if somebody listening to this wants to get engaged, are there things they can do? Um, tell us more about FAM's work. Absolutely. So FAM is a nonprofit, um, nonpartisan. We do work with everybody. Um, we want to get things done. We are working very hard in Pennsylvania. Um, I live at, I live in Pennsylvania, Northwest Pennsylvania. Um, and I would encourage you to go to fam.org or check out visitaprison.org. Um, either one, we have tons of information on there and we have a Pennsylvania page. Um, and on that page, if you, you know, even if you just Google fam Pennsylvania, you'll find that page and there's an overview of all of our work. There's a clemency tab on there that will tell you more about pending legislation, uh, letters that we send all, you know, webinars to learn more about this, all sorts of things to get you started learning more about clemency and commutation in Pennsylvania. Um, very briefly, I want to tell folks about the hashtag visit a prison campaign. We just launched this on July 11th. Um, we sent letters to 7,423 lawmakers, state and federal nationwide, asking them to please just visit a prison in their jurisdiction. Um, they can draw their own conclusions. They don't have to agree with our conclusions. Just please go because they make the laws that oversee these places and, and sentences that put people in these places. Um, we think they'll see that there are too many people there doing too much time um, and that the conditions are very, very bad. But certainly folks are free to draw their own conclusions. Um, it's relevant to every issue in criminal justice or the criminal legal system that folks care about, um, and it is relevant to commutation. Um, just last week, we had a visit in which one of the candidates for lieutenant governor um, came with us to visit a state prison in Pennsylvania and heard from men who had been there for 30, 40, 50 years, hey, I'm turning 71 this week. Um, I've been here for 50 years. I have not had a misconduct in decades. The Department of Corrections supports my my commutation application, and yet I've heard nothing about the application that I sent in over two years ago. Um, so that is incredibly impactful um, for lawmakers and policymakers and folks who have power over these things to hear directly from uh, people who are clearly most impacted by it. So fam.org, visitaprison.org, reach out to me directly anytime, and thank you so much. And Dave, uh, what about Free Migration Project? Is there, well, where can folks find more information or are there particular ways to plug in? Uh, for sure. And we're a, a small uh, nonprofit legal and services advocacy organization in uh, Philadelphia. We do work in Philly around the state and some national work as well. Um, 
And the best place to get more information about our work is at our website, freemigrationproject.org. Um, and if you go there and scroll down to the bottom, uh, you'll also see our links to our social media uh, where you can follow us for more frequent updates on what we're doing. Uh, there's information there about a Dennis and Julio's case, and we hope to be able to post uh, good news about Dennis's pardon application after the public hearing next week. Well, thank you all for your time. This has been really informative for me. It's really, I appreciate your expertise. Um, so I'm glad we were able to sit down and have this conversation. And most importantly, just sending a best wishes to your dad and to your family. We're all hoping for the best. Thank you so much. I appreciate you guys. Thank you. That's Maria Gellner of FAM, David Benyon of Free Migration Project, and Jacenia Calderon. Learn more about the Board of Pardons, FAM's advocacy on commutations, and Dennis Calderon's case at the links in the show notes. That brings episode 77 to a close. The audio editor of Speaking Freely is Freddie Foulet, and our video editor is Betsy Dorsett. Our music is from bensound.com. The executive director of the ACLU of Pennsylvania is Reggie Shuford. I'm Andy Hoover. Until next time, be healthy and be free.